2: Towards the end of the 18th century, an unconventional love affair scandalised Ireland. And the scandal began in one of the most prominent families in the country, the butlers of Kilkenny Castle.
3: If we look at the social standing of the butler family, like if you came to Ireland, you came to Kilkenny, you came to the castle. This was the most powerful family in Ireland. Here you had a family who, in a sense, were controlling Ireland. So, the Butlers were the family, they were literally the royal family of Ireland.
2: Walter Butler was the owner of Kilkenny Castle, a huge Norman fortification in the heart of Kilkenny City, surrounded by some of the richest parklands in Europe. Today, it is one of the country's most popular tourist destinations. Frank Kavanaugh has guided thousands of people through the story of the Butler dynasty and their ancestral home. This goes on up the,
3: to the top floor where you get wonderful views. Upstairs, each room had yellow. You have the blue bathroom, the yellow room. Look at the views down the park Like Absolutely magnificent. Absolutely magnificent.
2: It's amazingly impressive, isn't it? Yes, it has to be. Like all men of his class, one of Walter Butler's most important tasks was to marry his three daughters to suitable men of good fortune. However, at 29, his youngest daughter, Eleanor, was still unattached.
3: I mean, Eleanor was literally shoved out there I could say a price of £10,000 was put on her head Because that was the dowry Any man who would marry her was to be given £10,000 Now, her dad didn't have the £10,000 But it's like an investment If I give you my daughter And she was, remember now, she was a very beautiful looking lady Here's £10,000, here's my daughter Look what you'll get It's social standing It's social class it's, Let's climb the ladder a little higher How do we do it? Well, we need to marry off Eleanor
2: So they they put her out, as you say, with a price on her head. And were there no takers or what happened? Oh, there
3: were quite a few takers. Um, You know, at one stage they had a captain, there was a Captain Moriarty. He really fell in love with Eleanor, but he respected her wishes, that he found she was a very strong-hearted-minded person. He also found, uh, describing what he had said, was that this is a woman that no man will conquer.
2: Eleanor was breaking the rules for women of her class. You married according to your family's wishes, and if for some reason this wasn't possible, then you entered a convent. Eleanor refused to do either, and as she approached her 30s, she was becoming more and more isolated.
3: Now, by chance, and it was a chance, close by here to the castle, just across the road, was an old school, and this school was a school for ladies. And, of course, the family, Walter, was literally at odds trying to sort Eleanor out. So she was told perhaps if she had a companion or a friend.
2: Things seem to be looking up for the butler's most difficult daughter when, despite an age gap of 16 years, Sarah Ponsonby turned out to be a kindred spirit. Just across the road from the castle, at the site of Miss Park's boarding school, I meet historian Mary McAuliffe.
4: Sarah was orphaned young and she was sent to live with her uh, cousins. And at the age of 13, she was sent in here to Kilkenny, to Mrs Park's boarding school for young ladies. And the family, the Fowns family, who were looking after Sarah, who were their guardi- her guardians, asked Eleanor Butler to keep an eye on her. Eleanor would have been in her mid to late 20s at that stage, and Sarah would have been 13, 14. So that's how they first met. It was a request that Eleanor keep an eye on Sarah. And, of course, it would be to make sure Sarah as well, as an orphan who would be perhaps open to making inappropriate friendships, was hanging out with the, the right type of people, with the butlers of the Ormond dynasty and making sure she was getting to know the right sort, sort and the right set.
3: Here you had a beautiful young girl and a beautiful young lady who suddenly just connected. I mean, in those days you had just letters and all you had really were, was companionship and Sarah brought companionship. And, of course, because of the companionship that she brought, Eleanor now found she had an ally. She had somebody that could relate to. She had someone that she could talk to. She had someone who understood what Eleanor was going through, who actually agreed with Eleanor on the life That was social life that was going on in the country, and just with fate, as it turned out, Sarah arrives. It's almost like they were meant to meet, and I think they were.
2: Eleanor had strong views about resisting the narrow confines of the life laid out for women of her class and time. She wanted something more authentic. She wanted something better.
4: Both of them seem to have spent those years that Sarah was in Mrs Parks reading books on beauty and the sublime on art. You know, their friendship was seen as a bit extreme or perhaps unnatural in some ways, but Eleanor's philosophical bent and her thought process were also seen as, as strange.
3: Eleanor must have had an inner wish all along that her family never knew about, we never knew about, but suddenly
2: Sarah found it. After 10 years of friendship, Eleanor and Sarah made an extraordinary decision. They made a plan that broke every rule in the book. They decided that their best chance of happiness lay in running away together. On the night of March 30th, 1778, Eleanor prepared to leave Kilkenny Castle forever.
3: I mean, if you think back on it, here you had total darkness candlelight. And this lady about to leave all her wealthy goods behind. Somebody had to help her. I mean after all you're talking about the middle of the night I believe it was after 2am. It was quite dark but I don't think anything would have scared her at that time. Darkness certainly not. But
2: servants here must have helped her. Meanwhile 16 miles away in Woodstock
4: in Innistieg, Sarah Ponsonby was making similar preparations. So she probably, you know, snuck out the the open window, ran down the driveway, met up with Eleanor and they take off into the night. In a time when there were multiple mail deliveries every day around Ireland,
2: letters were the fastest way of communicating and had an immediacy not far off a Facebook post. So word of the unfolding scandal travelled fast. The first newsflash about the escape was a flurried letter penned by Sarah's Guardian, Lady Elizabeth Fownes. I can't paint our distress. My dear Sarah leapt out of a window last night and is gone off. We learn Miss Butler of the castle is with her. I can say no more. Help me if you can. We are in the utmost distress and I'm sure you pity us. God bless you. Ever yours, Elizabeth Fownes. This was to be the first of the many scandalized and puzzled communications that gripped the ladies of the upper echelons of Irish society.
5: I must scribble these few lines to tell you some particulars in which I know you are very interested. Miss B left the castle just as the family went into supper and was not missed for 2 hours. "'Tis supposed she changed her clothes in the porch "'and got on a horse, which she had never done before, "'to ride several miles of a dark night. "'Tis really wonderful, from the accounts we hear of their expedition, "'that either of them is alive. "'They lay two nights on straw in a barn, "'walked six miles over
2: a mountain.'" The plan that Eleanor and Sarah had laid... Was slowly unravelling. Their goal had been the packet ship in Waterford, which would take them to Wales. My mother set out at five on Thursday morning in a coach with Mr.
5: Kavanagh for the Waterford ship, within a mile of which Miss Butler and Miss Ponsonby had been stopped by an under servant of Sir William in a car in men's clothes.
4: They spent two nights in a barn because they missed the packet ship out of Waterford. Uh, Two ladies in somewhat masculine attire hiding in a barn, obviously, were seen. So the family find them and bring Sarah back here to Woodstock House. And Eleanor is condemned to solitude in Boris House in Carlow.
5: My dear Mrs Goddard. The runaways are caught, and we shall soon see our amiable friend again, whose conduct, though it has an appearance of imprudence, is, I am sure, void of serious impropriety. There were no gentlemen concerned, nor does it appear to be anything more than a scheme of romantic friendship. My mother has gone to
2: Waterford for Miss Butler and her, and we expect to see them tonight. The escape had failed. Eleanor and Sarah were caught and brought back to Kilkenny. They were kept apart, Eleanor was sent to her sister's house and Sarah was kept at home in Woodstock
4: House in Innistieg. And obviously there was concern about their relationship. They're not brought back together. Lady Betty mentioned the fact that Eleanor had a debauched mind uh, and while the relationship was seen in terms of a romantic friendship, there's an underlying suspicion that there's something going on here that's not quite proper for young ladies to be indulging in. What do you think the family thought was going on? Well, it's hard to say because they don't articulate what they thought was going on. But certainly uh, they were very conscious of the fact that maybe they were running away to meet men. And when that turned out not to be true, they were very relieved. That means that their honour is not um, lost. But then they turned their attention to the relationship, the intensity of the relationship between the two girls. Because Sarah Ponsonby be at one stage says she wants to live and die with Eleanor Butler. Uh, And that's a very profound statement for a young woman to make. A young woman who should be embarking on the round of dances and balls and, you know, meet up with some proper gentleman that she would marry. um, Somebody of her own class and uh, somebody with money and somebody perhaps with a country house like Woodstock. Um, And instead, she's resisting all this and, and saying she wants to spend her life with Eleanor Butler.
2: This was such an extraordinary thing to do that no-one could quite understand what was going on. Family and friends gathered to try and make sense of what was happening. I talked again to Miss
5: Ponsonby, not to dissuade her from her purpose, but to discharge my conscience of the duty I owe her as a friend by letting her know my opinion of Miss Butler and the certainty I had they would never agree living together. I spoke of her with harshness and freedom, said she had a debauched mind, no ingredients for friendship that ought to be founded on virtue. Sir William joined us, kneeled, implored, swore twice on the Bible how much he loved her, offered to double her allowance of £30 a year, or add what more she pleased to it. She thanked him for his past kindness, but nothing could hurt her more or would she ever be under other obligation to him? Said, if the whole world was kneeling at her feet, it should not make her forsake her purpose. She would live and die with Miss Butler.
2: Sarah, feeling trapped and ill after the failed escape, was miserable but unrepentant.
5: I thank you, my dear friend, For the good opinion of me you expressed in your letter Received this day by Lady Betty I am not yet recovered A constant head and heartache They propose great terms to Miss Butler If she will reside in a convent some years And give me up forever I am not heroic enough to wish she should accept them Nor is she, I believe, to listen to them Were I to do it again I would act as I have done
4: They talk about my beloved and my heart's desire and they call each other pet names and, uh, and, and love names. Um, so for, for Eleanor and for Sarah, the other was who they wanted to be with. Sarah and
2: Eleanor were clear in their desire to be together. The families, however, were determined to find a more respectable solution. Sarah, affectionately called Sally in these letters, had caused great consternation.
5: God send Sally may ever come to herself. At present, her head is much affected. We watch her day and night. In the coach, I could not help asking her the cause of this sudden flight. She said it was not sudden. Their plan was to go to England, take a house and live together. By all accounts, there was no man concerned with either of them. Ever yours, Eve Fones. My dear Mrs. Goddard, Sally is much better, but weak, low, and dejected. Stories, to be sure, there must be in plenty. Altogether, it is the most extraordinary affair. I sometimes can hardly think the cause is known by anyone but themselves.
4: God knows how it is, or how it will end. For a good number of years it causes great scandal.
2: And is the scandal caused because they're not doing what their family want or is the scandal caused because they think there's something disreputable about the relationship?
4: I think it's a mixture of both. I mean, two women from their class would would have to marry and give birth to the next generation of Anglo-Irish aristocracy. They're the ones who provided the children who would continue the lineage and that was their role in life. They were to be wives and mothers. But also there was this suspicion always that there was something untoward about their relationship about the intimacy and closeness and it was seen as a bit, a bit too much, um, I mean there was a great acceptance of friendships between women but this seemed to go beyond the norm um, and there's always that hint of sex
2: Within a month of the first escape, the couple took matters into their own hands again Eleanor left her sister's house in the middle of the night and walked 12 miles cross country to Sarah in the darkness. Within a day, they would be leaving Ireland forever, with a few pieces of luggage, their dog, and Sarah's loyal servant, Mary Carroll.
4: Well, the second time they, they get away together, Eleanor comes from Boris and is here in Woodstock and stays in, uh, gets into the house, probably with Mary Carl's connivance, because I, I don't imagine she would climb climbed in any window unless some servant was help, helping her. And she remains in Sarah's room then for a day or so, and uh, Mary feeds them and makes sure they're okay. And then they make the plan to escape together. So they both get out of the house, and Mary with them uh, get into the uh, carriage and basically disappear down the driveway. Apparently, Lady Elizabeth looks out and sees them go away, but going away, but makes no attempt to stop them. Uh, and both families don't give chase. I think at this stage they have accepted that these two women are going to spend their life together, or going to spend their life trying to be together if they're being kept apart. So there is a certain acceptance, grudging acceptance, because apparently it does cause much uh, talk and gossip and scandal which of course is a terrible thing for any family of this status to have scandal attached to it um, in subsequent months and years and some people are very um, angry with them There were
3: lots of stories um, I remember long long ago hearing a story from my old colleague here, a head gardener, who talked about the, the lady of the castle that went off with another lady and of course we're talking here about the early 70s so And he was the old head gardener. His father had been head gardener. His grandfather had been head gardener. So the story came down all along. But he was more or less saying, how did she do it? You know, it's amazing how people will always have different stories. And history will never agree anyway, other than facts and figures. But Eleanor, I'm glad, did make it to Wales.
2: Eleanor and Sarah crossed the Irish Sea to begin their new life together. Within two months... Both of Sarah's guardians, Lady Betty and Sir William, had died, and Eleanor would never see her parents again. With an enormous burst of courage, they had freed themselves from the lives laid out for them. They knew what they were leaving behind, but like all pioneers, the biggest challenges lay ahead. They had very little money and no family support, but they did have a dream. And that dream began to take shape when they came across a small cottage in North Wales. Plas it. In Clangoplin, on the banks of the River Dee. They were now free to build a home and share a bed together. Today, Janice Davis is part of the team charged with welcoming visitors to Plaz Nued. You
6: have to imagine this house when the ladies were here. You see the stone chimneys up there, that's a local stone. The whole house was made of this um, local stone and it was literally a simple stone farmhouse. None of these gothic windows, the windows were just square, simple stone doorway.
2: Let's go in and have a look. look. There we go. It's interesting uh, just to see the height of the doorways and the ceiling. I mean, I can easily touch the ceiling. Yes. And I'm not
6: terribly tall. And this is really interesting. You see these pegs here? These are the pegs. Um, the ladies put these, this is where they hang, hung their hats and their coats. And it's just so lovely, you know, that they put their hats there. Well, when they when they first came here, um, they like to refer to Place Neweb as um, um, a cottage, sort of a low roofed cot. Mm-hmm. But after a while, they they described it as a mansion, and and then they were just, this they called the state bedroom. So you can see where they came from. <laughs> um, it was a whole package here that we had. I mean, they they left Ireland, uh, they came here, and uh, I mean, what we had, what we what they had, they had a small house. They wanted a small house with some land uh, that they could garden. Um, where basically they created a faimornée, you know, like Marie Antoinette. And, um, and they wanted to walk, they wanted to sort of be part of nature. They had read Rousseau, you know, and they, they were really um, very much uh, into the Enlightenment that was coming out of France at that time. And so, uh, oh, I just this is a quote from Elizabeth Maver's book, and it says, Walking was all a part of the system, a regime that they had talked about and planned back in the days when Eleanor lived at Kilkenny and Sarah at Woodstock. The system bound them never to leave home, to devote hearts and minds to self-improvement, to turn their backs on vanity of society, to beautify their surroundings and to better the lot of the poor and unfortunate.
2: With these high-minded ideals, Eleanor and Sarah began their dream life together. Luckily for us, Eleanor religiously kept a journal of the days they spent together. My beloved and I went a delicious walk round
5: Edward Evans' field. Thin blue transparent smoke curling and spiring up the mountainside through the trees from the village. Writing. Hum of bees and insects. Sweet wild notes of Birds. Bleating of sheep, cackling of geese, songs and whistling of farmers at their plough. The only sounds to be heard in this lovely spot. Writing, drawing, another visit to the garden.
2: There was a philosophy behind their choice of lifestyle, a very strongly held philosophy. Yes, yes. What was it exactly?
6: Um, I think it came from the Enlightenment. It came from their reading Rousseau. It came from the fact that they were appalled by arist- aristocratic society back in Ireland, or England as well, um, that they wanted to give, live close to the land. Um, and that was what it was all about. They want, also wanted to um, be part of the um, the whole society. They wanted to give... Um, money away, 10% of their income they wanted to give away to ch- for charitable reasons. They never quite managed that, but they were very, very good benefactors in, in, in the village here. They were always giving the odd shilling to Jeanette the Witch and, you know. Jeanette <laughs> the, the Witch. Anybody who was, you know, sort of came on hard times and they would come up to the ladies and uh, there's sixpence here, shilling there. It's all, it's all done in the accounts that we have, um, Sarah's account books.
2: So they believed in living what sounds like an authentic life,
6: yes, a down to earth grounded um, existence. they wanted to grow their own vegetables, they wanted their own um, cows, they had cows, which they milked i'm not saying they themselves milked them, but they had people they had some uh, girls that would milk them um, they made butter uh, they grew potatoes, which they sold uh, they grew they grew all sorts of um uh, amazing things like figs and melons, which is. Quite hard to grow here. <laughs> um, and they had a, well, a femme ornée, you know, like Marie Antoinette, and they were very much following on from from that um, philosophy. They they were very much in the forefront. It's, it's why they they still remember today, and it's why um, even in their own lives, people were making little figurines of the ladies. You know, I mean, I mean, okay, there's uh, part of that is to do with, that. Their memory is part, partly to do with the fact that they had this extraordinary relationship. But it wouldn't have just been that, you know. It's more to do with this: this um, that they were the, they were leading, as you say, leading the way. They were forefront of. Uh, I
2: find it absolutely sort of extraordinary. Alternative living. Oh, it is exactly yes. alternative yeah. living. The fair Mornay Janice mentions was literally an ornamental farm. At the time, a cutting-edge and alternative way of making gardens both beautiful and productive. Eleanor and Sarah were becoming minor celebrities. Partly because of their romantic lifestyle, their beautiful gardens, and the extraordinary interior of their house. And partly because they were seen to embody the ideals of romantic friendship. This notoriety came with its own pressures. Like all couples, they had their disagreements but the ladies were careful to retreat to a particular part of their garden where they could not be overheard until they had resolved their differences in private. Catherine O'Donnell from UCD is an expert on women's lives during the period.
7: When we talk about romantic friendship, which is what these ladies kind of laid claim to, the term romantic, um, we mean that in the very kind of precise 18th century, early 19th century term as... Um, imaginative, um, impulsive, close to nature. Um, We don't mean it in this hallmark kind of wishy-washy way. Mary Hayes, the 18th century novelist, observed the term romantic as it was used at this time in the late 18th century, conveyed very kind of vague meanings. And she said, "...was therefore applied to everything we do not understand or are unwilling to imitate." they positioned themselves as kind of at the avant-garde, as it were, of a new aesthetic political movement of Romanticism. And from that point of view, they were also able to kind of operate in a certain kind of cultural kudos that they were able to cash in as a certain protection. And how conscious do you think that was? Do you think they did that deliberately? Absolutely. Absolutely deliberately. I mean, look at their house. They created a... I'm trying to avoid using the word queer. Let's just talk about romantic. And in some ways the word romantic and queer can almost be used interchangeably um, if we understand how romantic was used in, in 18th century terms to be eccentric, unknowable, uninterpretive, um, elemental. Um, they created this extraordinary uh interior and exterior of a home that made it again a place that people who are interested in aesthetic movements, in um, alternative political movements, they made it a place that was just a magnet for those kind of thinkers and writers. The inside of Plaza Newad is an amazing sight. Eleanor and Sarah
2: had what they described as oak mania and every available surface is covered in oak carvings. Over the years the collection was added to and the carefully designed interior became an important part of their eccentric reputation. Oh, there are any particular carvings we should look at. Uh, I mean, they're just all amazing, aren't they?
6: Here's one here. This is an extraordinary one here. Caryatids. They're basically guardians, and they're a, a feature of Jacobean furniture. So the guardians. You find these on chairs and uh, cupboards, uh, four poster beds. And we have 103 of these throughout the house. All different. I mean, so this one is very low relief. You can see she's holding a flower here. This is a woman here. She's holding a flower. A t- lovely dangling boobies there.
2: <laughs> she's a naked lady holding yes, a flower.
6: she is. Yeah. And then we have her sister over on the other door, who is seems to be expressing milk, which is very interesting. <laughs> really? Yes. Let's have a look.
2: There we go. Well, she's certainly touching her breast. Mm. I don't see any baby that might be getting the milk though. No. That's very interesting. That's interesting symbolism. Yes, it is. that? I
6: would love to know more about that one.
2: Over the next 20 years, their romantic retirement was increasingly replaced by a busier, more sociable life, with a stream of visitors calling from the very Anglo-Irish society that Eleanor and Sarah had fled from.
6: They had many, many visitors, and part of the reason was they were on the main road from um, London, Hollyhead, to Ireland. And being Anglo-Irish, many people would stop and... and, um to, to see the ladies but also people who didn't know the ladies right we, we had the hand hotel is a coaching stop people would stop change their horses stay overnight they would say well who of note is um is around that we can go and visit and they say oh the ladies of thank often you know, lady ellen about miss sarah Ponsonby." so they would send their card up to the ladies and the ladies say well i don't know who you are you know And they would send a note back saying we don't know who you are you would have to send a letter to us explaining why we should <laughs> see you Um, and then they would and and if they had good enough reason or a piece of carving in their hands then the ladies would um, would, uh, greet them and um, they would come for tea but the ladies um, their uh, elopement caused a scandal Europe wide so many people knew about this the house people knew about the house so they wanted to see the carvings and also these were very, very intelligent women, very widely read, uh, and you had people like um, Sir Walter Scott and Sheridan and uh, Wordsworth um, and the, the Potter, um, Wedgwood, Wedgwood come to see them, um, You know, artisans, um, writers um, coming to see them um, because because of everything that they stand for, because of this, this sort of movement that they really are part of, although... Not they per, perhaps didn't really want to be a part of any movement. They wanted to be themselves, but but they in, in essence were a part of the sort of the romantic movement. So they this is Sunday, August the fifth, eighteen twenty 1820, and eighteen twenty one. They entertained the following: Mr. Lloyd of Raggett, Mr. Mrs. Miss and Mr. Augustus Morgan in the morning. Then Lord Ormond and Lord Thirls. Then Lord Maryborough and Lord Burgish to luncheon, then Lord, Lady Ormond and Lord Thurles to dinner, then Lady Harriet, Lady Anne, Lady Louisa, Mr Walter, Mr James, Mr Richard, Mr Charles Butler, Prince Paul, Esther Halsey, for a short time in the evening, and Lord and Lady Ormond slept in our state apartment.
2: That's a very busy Sunday.
6: It is, isn't it? Yes. They had so many visitors, and even when they're quite elderly, they had these
2: visitors. By this time, Eleanor and Sarah, the two runaways from Kilkenny, had become known as the famous Ladies of Clangochland. But in the midst of all the Romanticism, there was the eternal question of money. Like all women of their class, their income was solely dependent on the goodwill of their families. And while relations thawed over time, the Butlers and the Ponsonbys could never quite forget the upheaval caused by Eleanor and Sarah... And those small amounts of money were sent every year, the ladies never got a fair share of the considerable family wealth. See, the ladies, they were very modern women in a way because they
6: spent money before they had it. And, uh, <laughs> uh, but they always knew they were going to get it. So, but they always spent their money, they spent all their money. But they, they, had, a- they had expensive taste, you know, the marble tiles in the hallway. They were from Italy. Now, today, marble tiles from Italy don't really cost that much. You had to put those tiles on a donkey to get them to the coast, the Italian coast and then on a boat to get them, and then another donkey. You know, it was um, very expensive. Candles as well, they had the most expensive candles. Um, Meat, their meat bill was very, it was huge, their meat bill. I mean, two turkeys, 17 shillings and sixpence, which I think is a lot of money, a lot of money in those times.
2: So they were determined to live well and live by their own standards. Yes, they did, yes. And they spent in the expectation that money would be forthcoming.
6: Yes, it, well, it it was usually with. I mean, they always had family. They had this uh, two hundred pound, the seventy pound. So uh, it it was it was money that they had, that was coming to them.
2: The woman who played a vital role in facilitating Eleanor and Sarah's escape from Ireland was Sarah's loyal servant, Mary Carroll. Decades later, Mary was still living with the ladies and working as their housemaid. In fact. Mary had proved to be a linchpin in the success of this extraordinary and unconventional relationship. Yes, she was definitely a huge part of their life. She was, she was the housekeeper. She was the person who dealt with all the tradespeople.
6: So, yes, she was a very, very important person to them.
2: Well, they were, it sounds like they were a real team and that Mary yes. Carroll played a very particular role in managing mm. the day-to-day reality yes. of life
6: for yes. these ladies. Yeah. Very much so, yes. I mean, she was a quite formidable person. She had been... Um, she was called Molly the Bruiser... Um, because she had lobbed a candlestick at a fellow um, servant in, in Woodstock. And uh, she was probably only too pleased to sort of come, off, come, come away with the ladies. And the ladies would have recognised her spirit uh, and, you know, would have loved to, to bring her, home, as they did. they were I mean, absolutely devoted to, each, to, to her, and she was devoted to them. And were they always able to pay her, even through the... No, of- she never got paid. No. She could have whatever she liked. She was also allowed to keep tips that she received from people that came to the house. Now, obviously, we had many people come into the house, and they would tip the housekeeper. And one of the things she liked was um, hair powder. Uh, and Mary, Mary, Mary loved to powder her hair, and, and so did the ladies. Up, up until their deaths, you know, they had this sort of strange, sort of short, um, Titus cut, um, and then it was heavily powdered, even after it was no longer fashionable. When she died, she died in 1809, she left all her money to Sarah. And uh, with that money, the two ladies were able to um, put a capital amount down and get a mortgage for the rest and buy the house with the money that this canny woman from, <laughs> from Innistique, Mary Carroll, had, had saved in her lifetime from tips from the people that came to visit the house.
2: Even in their twilight years... There was an air of notoriety around Eleanor and Sarah. There was always someone to gossip about the nature of their relationship.
7: Always rumors about their sexuality. Who knows what they did in bed, in their little bed, in their in their one bedroom? They could easily have had separate chambers, but they wanted to cuddle up with each other at night. Um, you know, who, who knows what sexual practices they did or didn't do. I, I kind of don't care in some ways. Let's, you know, let, let them have their privacy. Uh, they didn't leave us any record of that. What they did leave is a record of a copious, detailed record in terms of their letters, in terms of their house together, um, in terms of their grave, was that they were utterly and completely devoted to each other for more than 50 years and that this was a love that they rejoiced in daily. My dearest,
5: my kindest love did not sleep even for one moment the entire night, but lay beside me watching and lamenting my illness and soothing by her tenderness the distressing pain of my head.
2: As they got older, the pace of their life slowed, but their devotion to each other remained undiminished. They would wake up, they would usually go for a walk around the
6: home circuit, which is basically around their gardens here, um, they would read, they would write letters, they would have lunch. They would often do garden, um, they're out there in the garden. Um, they would go to church, At they'd walk all the way to Llan um, to church. If they weren't going to church, they would, might, might go on a, another long walk somewhere. They were really good walkers.
2: And they did all this together, the yes. two of them?
6: Yes, always together, yes. Uh, Now this, this is a lovely painting here. Um, This is by Lady Delamere and it was in 1828. Now, Eleanor died in 1829. Eleanor was blind uh, for the last five years of her life. So you can see here, we've got a picture of of Sarah. She's much taller than Eleanor. She's holding her hand there and she's leading her around the house. And this was noted by the visitors as well, that uh, how the, the, the beautiful way that Sarah would lead Eleanor around the house. My beloved sat
5: by my bedside reading to me for near two hours. A day of tenderness and sensibility. My Sally, how can I acknowledge the grateful sense my heart labours under of your tenderness, anxiety and incessant attention to your beloved?
2: Isn't it extraordinary Mm. looking at that, that the length of their relationship... Association, friendship—what yes. word you want to use? Very few people in the world spend that long together, that and have yes. that look of tenderness about them. Yes, fifty years. In 1829, Eleanor died at the age of ninety. The village of Clangoclin came to a standstill. The streets were lined with mourners. The only person missing at the funeral was Sarah Ponsonby. She was too distraught to attend. When I first started to tell this story, I thought it was a story about an aristocratic scandal, a dramatic escape, and a famous romantic idyll. What I came to realise is that more than anything, this was a love story, a story about a 50-year relationship that triumphed against all
7: the odds. They really and truly risked everything they had, that was their reputation, that was their life. I mean, they really had no very clear plan as to how they were going to financially survive. All they had was a vision of a shared life together. I mean, it is quite remarkable that they made it work. But yeah, they were deeply, deeply, deeply in love with each other for their lives.